Hello and welcome to The Sacred Reflections. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a series we're creating on the weeks that we don't have a full sacred episode for you. As you may know, if you've been listening for a while, our usual interviews are not particularly topical or timely. And we do that on purpose because we really want to help people step out of the everyday back and forth of that week's news and reflect on their values. But it seemed a bit weird to go through a crisis that's this big and not acknowledge it. So we hope that this mini-series of reflections will help us collectively process how the global COVID-19 outbreak is affecting our values and how's it making us think differently about how we live. I'll be popping back in to check with our former guests and I'll be wanting to know how they're getting on. Are they okay? And what, if anything, this time is telling them about their sacred values and what we as a society think is sacred. We'll also be hearing from a few of you wonderful listeners who've been sending us voice memos. I really, really love getting these. And there is still time for you to send us one. It's so thought provoking to hear your different experiences. So please record just a minute or two directly into your phone. Think out loud for us about the effect this time is having on your values and perhaps all of ours together. This week, I checked in with Dr. Teresa Bejan. Teresa is Associate Professor of Political Theory in the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Oxford. She's also a Fellow of Oriel College. And her book, which I read when I interviewed her before, Mere Civility, is a really amazing read on the history of 17th century debates about religious toleration in the colonies in England and America. But it also sheds light on our divisive public debates right now. Teresa, thank you so much for speaking to me. I know that term has started, so things might be a bit frantic. Tell me, how is what's your situation in lockdown and how is it affecting your life and your work? Right, well, um, it's great to see you. Uh, as you say, we've been in um, the vacation for the past six weeks, so it's been a reasonably relaxing pandemic, if you can say that. But, um, but yeah, so... Uh, Classes start again next week and um, everyone's scrambling to try to figure out how to move teaching online, how to move exams online. These are going to be truly uh, unprecedented exams in Oxford's history because they will be open book. And how are you doing? How are you coping with the transition to online learning? I saw a very very funny TikTok video of a woman (laughs) starting a song and then just screaming because the transition to online learning had broken her brain. Are you okay? I'm just impressed that you know how to operate TikTok uh, so to watch these things. I mean, it's only when people pull the good ones and put them on Twitter where all the middle-aged people are. Right, exactly right. I I am very comfortable on Twitter as a middle-aged person. Um, Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm doing very well. I this has been, I mean, very, very well under the circumstances. This has been a great opportunity for the counting of one's blessings. And so I've just been really fortunate to be safe, to know that my loved ones are safe, to be able to be in contact with them. And um, I have access to everything I need. So I really, I I really do feel quite um, fortunate. And I've been trying to use the time to, uh, to just sort of slow down a bit and have some space uh, I mean, academics usually joke that the vacations are the time that we have to actually do get on with our works, our actual research and teaching. But um, but I, you know, taking the time not actually to be under the cosh with deadlines, it's been it's been good. It's it's been weird though. 
Um, I'm going to take a pause now and I'm going to play you the uh, little bit of our conversation that we had when we first met about what your sacred values are so you can remind yourself. You can be thinking about have they changed or crystallised? Have things kind of bubbled up in this time? I think you'll be able to hear it if I just play it. Theresa, thank you so much for coming in to speak to me. And you have had some forewarning about our first question that we asked, the first question of the podcast, which can throw people, often throws me, which is about if you're able to reflect on it, what you think your sacred values might be. If there's something that is a principle or dear or a play, something other than the people that you love in your life, that you try and live your life by and that uh, you really would feel very strongly if you were asked to compromise that or give it up. Right. Uh, well, I, I, I did know this question was coming and I've been thinking about it a bit because um, I think you might have noticed with academics, we're you know, rather disinclined to, <laughs> to say that we hold anything sacred, right? Because we want to say, you know, no, 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 nothing is sacred. We follow the truth where it leads. But, um, but I think behind that, I, I'm going to give you a version of an answer. I know that you've gotten from some of the other guests, but I think I would phrase it slightly differently. And I would just say that my sacred principle is is this idea that it's it's better to know than not. Right. And you know, there are more or less offensive ways of framing it. I mean, one way of putting it is you know, knowledge is better than ignorance, but I sort of prefer my way because it's just this idea of the pursuit of knowledge as a kind of um, ethical principle and an idea of uh, the life that's that's best and worth living. And it's something that I, as I was thinking about it, I realized does inform so much what I do and not simply my research. I would actually say, you know, obviously I'd hope that that's informed by the pursuit of knowledge, but, um, but mostly my teaching, you know, this idea of conveying to students that this is a life worth choosing, the life worth leading. And, um, right. It's something that I, I think about more and more as I have you know teach longer and longer and and and, and worry sometimes that that's not always um, informing how we approach our teaching in in the modern university. It's funny, isn't it? Hearing ourselves back, I was struck <laughs> that you the resistance to the idea of the sacred, but the idea that you might just follow the truth and that the idea that just truth might be sacred. Uh, you seem to be like, no, that's not a route I can go down. Um, instead, this very obviously related point, which is knowledge, and it's better to know than not to know. How's that sitting with you? How's that revealing itself? Or maybe it's not and something else has come to the surface. Well, I'm glad for the opportunity to revisit this because it's something I have been thinking about. Just on the the resistance to saying it's truth. uh, I suppose I could put on a philosopher's hat and say, well, knowledge simply is true belief. But you're right that I I do want to resist that. I think because... um, I think sometimes the 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 pursuit or veneration of capital T truth is not always productive of knowledge, if that makes sense. Um, I there are various ways in which I think I go astray, and I'm constantly um, speaking of a person that we do teach a lot in the modern university. It's John Stuart Mill and his arguments for freedom of thought and discussion and on liberty, and it's all about capital T truth and. As I teach that and sort of as I just live longer, I've become increasingly skeptical about um, what happens when you take truth directly as your aim um, and the kind of uh, the, the perhaps um, negative consequences of that. What do you tell me a bit more? Because that's never occurred to me that seeking truth might uh, have unintended negative consequences. Well, firstly, because. Um, using the pursuit of truth as the justification for various institutions or social or political principles, as Mill does in that essay, 
I, I just think it's open to the challenge that um, freedom isn't productive necessarily of the truth. So I, I, I guess this is actually just a, another example of, of something that Isaiah Berlin called ethical pluralism, and I don't subscribe entirely to his view, but I think he was just right about something, which is that not all good things go together. So I, I, think, I, I think that's probably ultimately the ground of my discomfort. Um, the resistance to anything like a sort of easy theodicy about, oh, well, don't worry if you wait long enough, the, the arc of history bends towards justice or whatever you'd like. Um, would that it were that simple. So knowledge instead uh, then, what's, what's this time teaching yeah. about knowledge and, and, the, and the seeking of knowledge, the pursuit of knowledge? Yeah, well, w one thing that jumped out at me a lot in, in revisiting the question and revisiting that clip is the point about, about choice and what's a choice worthy life. And I suppose one thing we're saying is that it's not, not always in our choice, um, whether or not, you know, we're not always in an opportunity to choose knowledge uh, or, or ignorance, right? Um, and in cases like the present one with this global pandemic, the idea is, well, you know, we can make ourselves really miserable um, in the pursuit of information, information that's incomplete, uh, information that's absent, um, information that's faulty. Uh, you know, we hear a lot about, uh, about the uh, uncertainty of the numbers, for instance. And I suppose then that leads me to the, uh, another point, which I which the more I think about, the more I think could be right. And so I'm going to go with it, which is that, well, awareness and acceptance of uncertainty is itself a form of knowledge. Um, so the awareness now that we're living in times of great uncertainty under conditions of great uncertainty, you know, thinking for just in my own case to this new semester, it's very uncertain how it's going to work. It's uncertain now whether we'll be back physically in the fall, even um, forget, forget just this summer term. So just trying to uh, know when things are uncertain and know that they are uncertain and know that that is the way that they are. Uh, I think, yeah, there's value, value in that. I'm seeing that with a lot of people and colleagues and friends that for a particular kind of highly academic, highly educated set of people used to being able to apply their brains to a problem, to big problems that matter to them. And that, you know, I run a, re I, I lead a research team and the idea that, uh, research couldn't be the answer to getting you to, you know, what you need. Um, does, you know, it require, it's almost a kind of spiritual practice of, uh, of that acceptance of the, um, there are, there are some things that the pursuit of knowledge right now, not, you know, the pursuit of knowledge long term for those who it's their field and for those with access to the right data is the right answer. But for the rest of us, uh, perhaps it's something else. And I wanted to ask about the, um, the relationship between knowledge and wisdom and how comfortable you feel with the word and the concept of wisdom. It can feel a bit hallmark cardy, I realise, but there's a lot in scripture about the difference between them. And as a kind of theologically trained person, I'm always aware that you can accumulate a huge amount of knowledge and not grow in wisdom. And I feel like the same sometimes applies for ethics professors as we uh, see parodied in The Good Place. Um so what, what, how do you feel about the word wisdom? Do you feel like it's related to knowledge? Is it just something that you're not that into? Uh, 
<laughs> not that into wisdom. Uh, yeah, no, obviously, you're just not wise, Teresa. I'm just insulting. Well, that that certainly is, is the case, and maybe my preference for knowledge over wisdom is just a kind of um, a recognition of um, my own limits and an embrace of humility, an uncharacteristic embrace of humility, uh, no, which is I, another I, good I, thing. <laughs> those good things go together. Um, no, it's funny when when you say that wisdom sounds hallmarky. It's the 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 immediate resonance for me is actually is the is the biblical one. I mean, I I immediately go to Ecclesiastes, and I suppose I suppose it's just I don't I'm not in the habit of thinking about wisdom as something that I can pursue. Um, I don't know that wisdom is necessarily in our gift in that way. I mean, I I should hope that one day I might become wise or that I achieve some wisdom along the way. Um, but I don't see that as open to the kind of ethical choice that I see knowledge as like knowledge is something that I can choose to pursue whereas wisdom, I'll be lucky. I'll be lucky if that comes my way. Wow. Um, we're, um, we're praying midday prayer together as a Theos team for those who want to. And, the, and, and it's on my mind because the line that we're praying every day is, uh, help us, dear Lord, to number our days that we may uh, apply our hearts unto wisdom. And so I think the natural framing for me is that it is something that you can choose, that you can uh, you can ask for help with, but that you can apply your heart to it. And that's, yeah, I need to think more more about that. That's really interesting. Um, tell me, um, either through the framework of kind of sacred values, which um, Scott Atran uses and Jonathan Haidt's been using a bit, and I think is gaining a kind of, broader academic credibility slowly, but lots of people don't love it or it's not their thing. So either that or through one of the framings from your work, what do you see this pandemic revealing about our values, about the things that we collectively either do live by or think we should live by and are at least giving lip service to? I think um, one thing related to my work that struck me quite a lot, um, and I've been thinking about in advance of our speaking is, the, the 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 ability of people to come together um, and engage in quite amazing collective action in the face of a crisis that recognizes that we do share a common life. Um, and I mean, so the present case is so interesting because this is precisely uh, it's a virus that is spread through the sharing of a life, um, but our uh, sharing of space, sharing of air. Uh, yeah, the awareness of, of citizens um, saying, oh, those who share this life, who share this fate together, being able to recognize that, yes, we share this and then act in a way that's, that's, um, that's necessary to preserve the possibility of future sharing. That I, I find to be cause for great optimism. And I think that um, it's something that strikes me particularly about the UK case uh so there it's you know that seems a a sense of of sharing a fate um Uh, tell me a bit more about that because you're an american you're living in the uk been living in the uk for several years and you're presumably watching both things unfold do you see a difference in the sacred value or the, the sacred values or the sense of common life, the sense of shared values in how it's playing out in the different nations? Mm, I do see something. I, I do see a difference. And, and I'm not, I mean, generally, I'm not in the business of, I think, what a lot of people are in the making of comparisons and sort of saying, finding one one side of the comparison wanting or, you know, moralizing about the difference. So I'll, I'll I don't always refrain from that, but I, I shall try to. I, but I, I suppose what I do notice particularly is that 
you know, American um, Americans have come together. They're also practicing social distancing. I don't know that um, we find meaning in it the same way that people seem to in this country. The idea that acting in this way is 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 expressive of and giving a kind of honor to um, a principle that matters. Uh, and that that I do I, I do think that's different. But it could also be a, a function of you know the other really salient differences size diversity everything else um but i i have really been struck um by the way in which brits have come together um and seem to buy in to the to um lockdown and abiding by lockdown as, as a as a meaningful act we haven't had kind of counter lockdown protests have we or at least not in the size or scale um which is a, is an interesting thing to me. Yeah, and I mean, and I do think that there are certain. I mean, there. My goodness, I mean, there are situations where where one feels the lack of the counterweight. Um, I again, this is awareness of the limitations of my knowledge. I'm not an epidemiologist. It seems to me this is probably one of those cases where um, it's best to have the debate once the crisis has ended. Um. But you know, I, I'm a great lover of the American tradition of dissent and and, and counter saying. Uh, so yeah, I, I value that. But I do I do think that it's really there is a big a big difference. Um, and there's plenty of calling out of the government and the pointing out that you know, uh, plenty of criticism action could have could have and maybe should have been taken earlier. Um, so there's no, it's not the same sort of rallying around the flag effect that you see sometimes. But um. Nevertheless, that criticism isn't a criticism of the policy per se, or it's not a sort of resistance to the authority of the government to impose this policy. Um, and that does seem quite different. Although I, I would say, I mean, plenty of people I know in the States who, whom one might expect to be sort of naysayers um, aren't at all and are really, you know, fully in and observing social distancing and staying at home. So I don't think that um, it's falling simply along political lines in the way that one might expect. Yeah. Or, um, uh, Teresa, I know you have an enormous pile of uh, teaching, writing and research to get back to you. So I'm just, um, for everyone is so thinly spread and so uh, fried, at least at seasons in this time. So I'm so grateful to you for taking some time to kind of zoom out a little bit and reflect on your sacred values with me. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to uh, to think about this again. It's a question that I, yeah, I, I hope to remind myself to ask and answer. Maybe I'll come talk to you again in another year. Yeah. <laughs> Please do. Who knows what the world will be? Oh, jeepers. Okay. Bye. I was so interested to hear what Teresa had to say. When we acknowledge uncertainty, that's a form of knowledge. And like many people, I spent the early weeks leading up to the crisis, reading everything, reading every comment piece, reading every analysis, reading every terrifying tweet thread, um, and looking at graphs, which I don't normally spend quite as much time doing. Even there were some members of my team who were creating their own graphs and sharing them with us. There was this sense that if we can uh, really gain enough knowledge, we'll understand this deeply unsettling event. But actually, I think most of us have come to the conclusion that it, it's healthier to just say, we don't know, or at least I don't know, and I can't know. And there might even be wisdom in that and I also want to think more about that thread. You know, can you pursue wisdom? The Bible certainly says you can. It's not just an accident. It's not just a side project. 
So I wonder what that relationship is between knowledge and wisdom. I think scholars at different times in history would have seen them go together, but I'm not sure the uh, modern university thinks like that. You know, is knowledge and wisdom like two horses in harness that uh, pull together or are they sometimes pulling against each other? I'd love to hear from you if you have any insights or wisdom or knowledge on those uh, subjects. Please do get in touch on Twitter, drop us an email or send us a voice memo. Here is a voice memo from one of our listeners. This is what the world feels like when seen through the lens of crisis. The impotent certainty of hindsight and the vast uncertainty of even the immediate future. Rival models painting statistical pictures, some so bleak they defy imagination, and some too like the present to be fully believed. And somewhere in this are our lives, actions and responsibilities. What I'm learning is that normality isn't exactly a lie, but nor is it a property of the world out there. It's inside. It's our ability to cope with circumstances by treating them as more or less patterned and predictable. Things we can manage with the habits, resources and psychological recourses that we have to hand. And when one life or a handful of lives cease to be able to cope, well, that's one thing. That's tragedy and irony and mortality. But when normality ends for millions or billions of people, that's something else. A time of new patterns and possibilities. Ordinary words are charged with strange feeling. Ordinary acts become heroic or impossible. Small questions warp into huge questions. And the future waits, poised to become belatedly self-evident. Thank you so much for listening to this Sacred Reflection. We were really delighted that The Sacred was featured on the BBC podcast radio hour over Easter. So if you're a new listener, because you heard us on that, welcome. Thank you so much to all of you who are sending in voice memos, who are rating the podcast, who are writing little reviews for us, who are uh, just spreading the word in whatever way you can. It's really, really helpful um, for other people finding us. So thank you and please keep doing that. The Sacred is a project of the Think Tank Theos. You can find more about us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk.